Colt McKaylin. Appreciate it very much. Good job, Mr. Colt. Very good. All right. Hebrews chapter number 10. Turn with me there. Hebrews chapter number 10. I'm excited about getting into the remainder of this passage. Uh, I'll say this morning or this evening here, I already messed up. I said it again this morning. Okay, this evening. And I uh, hope you already enjoyed being in the Lord's house singing. Brother Doug's going to come down the middle aisle while I'm talking. And if you need an outline, he'll have one. And so and if you don't have one, I'd like for you to grab one and follow along with us. But this evening, I sure hope you've enjoyed being in the Lord's house already. I sure have enjoyed your singing. You've done a great job this, uh, this evening. Been good. I was just thinking up here as we were finishing that last hymn. Um, I don't know about you, but it's been a very busy week, lots going on, and uh, you feel like you're pulled in many directions and uh, uh, haven't listened to much music and things like that, and I sure haven't sung any music since Sunday. I'll tell you, it was good to get in the Lord's house and sing songs, amen, and sing praise and worship to the Lord, and I don't know, that just ministers to me already, what we sing about, and uh, thankful for the opportunity. I hope you look forward to that, and uh, uh, keep singing as the Lord uh, gives you opportunity, but it's always good to come together as as the family of God and sing together and sing songs of worship and praise. And so enjoyed your singing tonight. Did a great job and appreciate your participation in that. Hebrews chapter 10, we've been looking at verse 26 through verse 31. And uh, we saw this to be that last, uh, the fourth warning, excuse me, of the five we found in the book. Uh, we believe it to be speaking to believers. We, we base that upon, and we're not going to do a lot of review tonight. I just want to throw this out there quickly so we can finish up this passage tonight. So as we looked at the passage, we said, number one, the context points the believers being spoken of. We uh, referenced the, the use of the word we uh, multiple times. Also, the, the continuation of the thought. And I, I specifically last week mentioned the passage before, and that is true, but also the passage afterwards is speaking to believers. And so it seems rather consistent in that sense. Number two, we also saw that the phraseology uh, indicates that. We looked at particularly those two phrases in which it certainly appears that he's talking to saved uh, that full knowledge. He's talking to saved uh, people, believers. And then number three, we said that the words of God himself, the, the reality that the Holy Spirit led Paul, uh, the author of Hebrews, to quote God speaking of his own people would seem certainly to indicate that this passage is doing just that. It's speaking to believers. Then we said, okay, let's, as we get that down, settle that, let's talk about the action that is warned against. And he says, that for if we sin here in verse 26, and we didn't get through a ton, we'll do that tonight, we'll get through several verses tonight, but for if we sin, we talked about that, that verb tense uh, there, number one being a specific group, and that verb tense speaking to the present active tense, meaning an ongoing, continual sin. In other words, it's a repeated sin. Uh, you might describe it as a lifestyle sin. It's not just one act of sin where we trip up, we fall up. It's not a one-time occurrence. Then we said, he says, the next word gives us the secondary thing, the action spoken of, but there's also the attitude behind it. He says, for if we sin, and that interesting word, willfully, willfully. It's not speaking of a sin that's committed ignorantly, right? It's deliberate, it's premeditated, it's purpose behind what we do. I, I know it's wrong, but I choose to do it anyway. I, I know I, uh, I should do that, but I choose not to do that. And it's deliberate, it's premeditated in that sense as we talked about. Uh, it's not a sudden impulse of the will. Sometimes our, our, our sudden impulse of the flesh, maybe you could describe it. Sometimes we get ourselves in, into trouble that way, don't we? We'll say something before we think about it. 
right? That's really not what this is talking about. It, it's not talking about the sudden impulse of the will that, oh, man, I wish I would said that. No, this is a settled sin. In other words, it's willful, it's voluntary, it's already a settled intention of the will. I know what I'm doing, right? You know, those of us who are parents, we can see that within the countenance of our kids, it's settled they're going to do wrong, and you can just tell it by looking at them. And that's kind of the, the, that's the description here, that you and I as sinners, we're, we know it's wrong, but we've decided to do it anyway. And, and we'll throw out the term even tonight. Very much the passage is describing a backslidden Christian. A Christian who is in sin, gross sin. A, sin. a Christian who has decided, no, this is the way I'm going to live in spite of the word of God saying this. It's a backslidden Christian. And so this is all descriptive of this, this willful disobedience. And this willful disobedience, we said, is something that God certainly takes serious. In the Old Testament, there's a term for it, right? The presumptuous sins. It's the deliberate, intentional, willful, arrogant, even flagrant, okay? Uh, you know it's wrong, but you're doing it, it's flagrant, and it's presumptuous. In God's laws, he made a differentiation about how those things were dealt with. The ignorant person, the, the person who sins ignorant, excuse me, uh, ignorantly uh, was handled different than the person who sinned deliberately or willfully. We looked at the two passages, we won't tonight, but Exodus 21 and then Numbers chapter 15 that demonstrated that. He, he, he references or points to all of that here for the big theme. What's the big theme? Well, Christians cannot sin and get away with it. You can't sin and get away with it. The passage is sounding the alarm. It's warning believers that ongoing willful sin in one's life will be dealt with. And so, as I would like to say, as I said last week as we finished, my friend, if you're a believer and you have sin in your life, that is not something you want to leave to God to take care of. You do not want God to do the house cleaning. You want to take care of it yourself. You want to confess it and forsake it and, and repent of it and experience the, the mercy that God extends to us in that forgiveness, right? And so that was, that's really the challenge of the passage. Now, let's get in a little bit deeper here. Look at the rest of verse 26. Let's read this, and we'll see a most interesting statement. I, it's a, somewhat of a peculiar statement, but once we see how it flows together, I think it really sheds some light on what we're being told or informed of here. For if we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. And that's an interesting statement. There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. What's he talking about? Well, let's put it this way. Room number three, we're going to call it this. The annulment of the attitude action warned against. It annuls something. In fact, the word here, that annulment, hence I used it, it means to make void. To make void. And that's really what the uh, author, what the Holy Spirit's getting at here is uh, there's something that this attitude and this action for the sinning willfully annuls in our life. Now, when we think of annulment, we probably typically apply it to a marriage, right? Someone gets married and they want to annul it quickly and uh, avoid it and make it null and void. I, I think of it in terms of maybe something we see more on a regular basis. Uh, you, you ever write a check and you mess it up and you have to write void across that check uh, or something like that? Or someone sends you back a check and it's voided out? Or you have to submit a voided out check for something to, a, uh, to give the account number, whatever the case may be. That's the picture here of the rest of verse 26 that um, something is voided. Now, now, what's it talking about when it says there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin? Again, it's an interesting, somewhat peculiar statement if taken by itself. 
But as we look at it in context, we, we are reminded of some things that you and I enjoy in the salvation we have, specifically what he's alluding to here. You see, one of the joys of coming to know Christ as our Savior is what he does with our sin. What Hebrews has already established happens through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to the sins you and I have committed. We, we talked about on Sunday night, one of the joys of knowing Christ is that at the cross of Calvary, we exchange our sinful garments, those filthy rags, we exchange those for the robe of righteousness of Christ. So he exchanges those. We, we get that picture, and it's a beautiful picture that you and I are wearing spiritually now in the eyes of God, the robe of righteousness. Well, as he dealt with our sin, we understand three things particularly, right? We understand, number one, the penalty is paid. In other words, it can't be collected from us. Boy, I sure am thankful that the, the penalty of sin is not on our debt anymore. And God is not going to, when you pass into eternity, say, all right, you got a debt to pay. We still need to collect this. No, not at all. It's already been paid. When Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary and you put your faith and trust in him, aren't you thankful the penalty was paid? The wages of sin were taken care of. It's no longer going to be collected. And so we understand that. Our sin debt, the wages of sin, has been taken care of by our Savior. You and I are headed to heaven, not hell. Number two, the day is coming, as we've talked about even here in Hebrews, but also in Romans, the day is coming when the presence of sin will be removed. One of the great uh, realities of this salvation we enjoy in Jesus Christ is that it's the gift that keeps on giving, as I like to say, because the best part's yet to come. You and I are going to go to heaven where there is no sin. There is no corruption of sin. There's nothing that sin has uh, uh, created and caused in this earth. And uh, aren't you thankful that heaven, there won't be any hospitals? Aren't you thankful? I'm telling you, we, we spend a lot of time in hospitals collectively, don't we? Uh, doctor's offices and everything else. I sure am thankful. You, you know where health and all that junk came, death came from and pain from sin? From sin. And so we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. And that, that, that's a great joy. That's what the sacrifice, that's the sacrifice that certainly is spoken of here in this passage and throughout Hebrews did for you and us and you and I. We'll, sin will be removed when we head to heaven. And now, what is spoken of here in this verse particularly is that presently sin no longer has to rule and reign in these mortal bodies. Speaking of today and right now, the power of sin is removed. It's a great biblical study and a great truth, and it kind of takes us back to Romans a little bit in our study there, but this is what he's speaking of, okay? Um, when, when Carter and Carson and CJ were younger, okay? Now they're almost taller than me and so forth, and so I, I, I pick my battles very carefully <laughs> in wrestling and things. But when they were younger, boy, we'd wrestle like crazy, and, and uh, CJ was hilarious because CJ would start, start something up with Carter or Carson, and they'd like put him in a headlock or something like that, and they'd get him in a hold, and he'd cry out, Dad, help me, Dad, help me. So I step in and I'd, I'd pull an arm away, throw this kid this way, throw, you know, and, and free CJ. You know what that crazy kid would do? He'd go right back at it. He'd go pick on one of the brothers and then, Dad, save me! And I mean, by the second or third, fourth time, I was like, no way, you've already been freed. I freed you once, I freed you twice, I freed you three times, no more. It's your problem if you go back to that. Can I tell you, that's kind of the picture of the passage. He's saying, listen, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. He's saying, listen, I, I've already freed you. I've done everything that I, I could do. Christ has. 
um, for you and I. I have freed you from the power of sin in your life. So what is it saying? If we deliberately go sin, you know what we're denying? The daily power of Christ's work on the cross that makes it possible to overcome sin. The power of the sacrifice of Christ is that you and I don't have to live in sin today. We have the power of God resting upon us, so, so we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to live in sin. We can be free from the power of sin. See, there's not another sacrifice of sins. There remaineth no more sacrifices. Jesus is not going to die on the cross again. He does not need to. He's done everything that needed to be done to free us from the power of sin today. There's nothing else God can do or will do to help us overcome sin. He's already done it all. See, it it brings to light the reality that you and I are sinners in two ways. We are sinners because we commit acts of sin, but we are also sinners because we're born with a sin nature. You see the statement on your your, your, um, outline. It's a good statement. We do what we do, and that's sin, because we are what we are. We're sinners by nature. We do what we do, we sin, because we are what we are by nature. We have a sinful nature. Adam, it passed down, hence the reason Christ did not have an earthly father that that passed it on to him. We understand that. Uh, So that sin nature is passed on, and and we commit acts of sin because we have a sinful nature. Now, don't misunderstand it, okay? Do not think that we're just a product of our environment. We're just this. We can't help ourselves and so forth. No, that's not what the Scriptures are saying. It's just pointing this out. The fact is, you and I are sinners, and we need a Savior. And the Savior came along so that he could help us. The Savior came so that you and I can have power over sin, not sin, have power over us. We know what the Scriptures say, that uh, Jesus Christ, he died on the cross to deal not only with our individual acts of sin, okay? So every day, you and I, we commit a sin. We can say, hey, you know what? That sin's under the blood. Jesus Christ died on the cross for that sin. That's true. He certainly did that. But you know what Jesus Christ also did? Jesus Christ died to free you and I from the sin nature. And that sure is a good thing. Because, yeah, I I commit the acts of sin, and I'm a sinner because of that. But I'm also a sinner because I have the sin nature. But the great news is this. Jesus Christ died on the cross to free me from the power of the sin nature. And that's what it says. Listen, there remaineth no more sacrifice. You You don't need any more sacrifices. You just need to live in the power that Christ has already provided. Now, it's a great truth we'll see play out here. You see, it speaks often of this one sacrifice. And when you and I trusted in Christ as our Savior, this one sacrifice, spoken of a lot here in Hebrews, became effective in our life. The old sin nature is dealt with. It's weakened in the life of the believer. And it makes a great study when we study the old sin nature Uh, how you want to describe it and so forth. The old man, it's described in other passages. You know what Romans, you remember what Romans 7 says? It says that it's still there waging war. The struggle is still real in the life of a believer, but the good news is it's fighting a losing battle. See, the old flesh has already been defeated, and it is daily defeatable through the power in Christ. See, Christ defeated it on the cross, and yet it still tries to win the war. It, it, it's, a, it, it, it's, it's, it's lost the war, but it still tries to win battles every day in our lives. 
And yet you and I, it is a weak opponent. It is a weak adversary. It is a weak enemy. Because Jesus Christ provides the power for us to, to win those battles. You see, you and I have been given a brand new nature along with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to help you and I. I like Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. You know what he says, Paul? Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. And we put it to death. It doesn't have to have that power over me anymore. We put it to death that the body of sin might be destroyed. Isn't that interesting? That the body of sin might be destroyed. Uh, This flesh and everything that it wants to do and the lust of this world that it wants to fulfill, it's dead. I'm dead to it. It doesn't have to have power in my life. That henceforth we should not serve sin. Remember what verse 2 of Romans chapter 6, and I don't want to re-preach Romans, but it is a good book. But Romans chapter 6 and verse 2, you know remember what it says? That you and I are dead to sin. What's it speaking of? Well, sin's still around us. Can I still sin? You better believe it. But you know what? It doesn't have to rule and reign in our lives. It does not have to have power. That's why we can offer uh, something like Reformers Unanimous. That's why we can offer and say, hey, God brings liberty. God brings freedom. Because he has brought freedom from the power of sin in anyone's life as they trust and put their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, he's talking about there in Romans 6, the power of sin in our lives. We now have the power over sin. It no longer has the power of us over us. And that is even what this passage speaks to. You and I must claim the power on a daily basis as we deal with our individual sins. Hey, bringing every thought into captivity. I don't want to say that word. It ought not to be said. I don't want to do that. I shouldn't do that. I now have the power in Jesus Christ to resist the pull of the old nature, the temptation of the devil. We now have the power of Christ resting and residing, resting upon us, residing within us. I like to think of it in this term. It is the daily living out of the power of the cross that Paul writes (laughs) writes of in Romans 6 and 7. All those references were not by mistake. Ah, The old man's crucified. You are dead. All of these things are not by chance, by accident. The Holy Spirit is driving home the thought. You and I need to live out the power of the cross on a daily basis. You do not have to sin. You have power over sin. And the Christian who is living in sin, the Christian who is this kind of person, if we sin willfully... There remaineth no more sacrifices. God has already provided the power necessary to not live in sin. Romans is full of verses of about, especially chapter 6, right? Romans 6, 11. Likewise, because this is true, reckon yourselves, ye also yourselves, to be dead indeed unto sin. There it is, another statement. But alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. How about Romans 6, 18? Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Understand that the common theme, the common thought, you've been freed. It's crucified. It's dead. The old flesh, the old nature no longer has to have power. You don't have to remain a slave, a servant of sin. You are free to be a servant of righteousness. You see, before Christ came along, you and I did not have the power in and of ourselves to resist sin completely. Oh, the conscience was there, and no doubt we, we wanted to do good, and it was times we could strive to do good, and maybe we could do it on meager levels, but the reality is we could not do it completely. We could not live a good enough life to gain heaven. Christ came, and you know what he did? He gave us life first. He saved us, 
And he gave us a life in which we do not have to be defeated by sin. He did what we could not do to defeat sin. He gave us a new nature within with a new power to live godly. This is the delight and the joy of a relationship with God and being a new creature in Christ. Behold, all things are passed away. All things are become new. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. You have a new nature. Now you and I have a new nature and we have a new power through God and Jesus Christ that you and I can now live without sin dominating and ruling in our life. There remaineth no more sacrifices. There, there's no need. There's none of this. Uh, there, there's nothing that needs to be done so that you and I can overcome sin. It's already been done completely. In Colossians chapter number 3, Paul will write this. He says, and having put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Having taken on that new nature and received it, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, it needs to be renewed. Now here's the neat thing, okay? That's true. We have the new nature of Christ. And because of such, we are enabled, we are empowered now to do everything we could not do before in our own power when we were ruled by the sin nature. And so you know for what, friend? You and I as believers, we now have the power, the ability to do things we could have never dreamed of without Jesus Christ. To live a holy life, to live a godly life, to live a life which is pleasing to him. The only way that you and I can fulfill a verse like whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God, is only because you and I are found in Jesus Christ. And there's power in the cross. There's power in what Christ has done. Paul would go on in Colossians chapter 3. In fact, turn with me there. Colossians chapter number 3. Would you turn with me there? Colossians chapter number 3. Notice what he says. We read verse 12. That's where he says you have a new nature. Uh, You've been blessed with that in Christ. 3, verse 10. Jump down to verse number 12 with me. You see it, verse 10. Have put on the new man, okay? That's happened. We have a new nature in Christ as we're saved. Now, verse 12. Notice what he says is possible now. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. Holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Verse 15. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body. Be ye thankful. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Verse 17 and whatsoever you do in deed or word and deed do all in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to god and the father by him then it goes on it talks about home it talks about relationships at work it talks about all the way you and i are supposed to live godly and holy in this present world how in the world does a person do that they do it through jesus christ it's the only way It is the power that you and I have tapped into, that the power that God has given us as we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Therefore, there remaineth no more sacrifice. You have sin in your life, my friend. I have good news. In Jesus Christ, you can overcome it. Where medicine fails, where self-will fails, where other things fail, may I just tell you right now, Jesus Christ can be victorious. There's victory in Jesus. Over all kinds of sins and temptations and spiritual battles, you can have victory in Jesus Christ. That is why there remaineth no more sacrifices. There's nothing left to be done so that you and I can overcome sin in our sin nature. Christ has done all he could through us through the sacrifice on the cross. 
So therefore, to go sin deliberately, to sin continually, is denying its making void all that that sacrifice did for us. That's what he's saying in that little statement at the end of verse 26. It seems just a small statement, but he's saying, listen, well, there's a problem. We're making something void that is, should be the, the powerhouse in our lives. It should be the means by which you and I overcome sin on a daily basis. The thought that I should not have, the word I should not say, the deed I should not commit. How do I overcome that? The power that rests within me through Jesus Christ. But boy, if you and I just live in sin... And we choose willfully to do that. We are voiding the very power of God that rests upon us. It isn't just verse 26, though. He goes on in this passage to use what I would call more condemning language. Look at verse 29. Notice what he says. Verse 29 back here in Hebrews. If you're like me, you're in Colossians. So turn back to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 29. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be uh, thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified uh, an, an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. It really is a sad picture in this verse. You know what's being described? Here's a backslidden Christian. Here's the picture and the description of what he is doing in sinning, what he is voiding, what he is annulling in doing what he's doing, in backsliding, in sinning. It's funny because it, there's a great um, little um, um, outline in the verse, isn't there? Look for the word half, and we find three things. Notice it. Number one, what do we find? Number one, he hath trodden underfoot. The Son of God. He hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. I don't know about you, but the immediate thing that I think of is in the Mount of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Excuse me. Uh, Christ would talk about salt that has lost its savor, right? Flavor, savor, right? And it, it, it's not good for anything but to be what? Cast out and trodden underfoot. Literally, the picture there is what? It is worthless. Worthless. So you know what's being described here? He said, you know what a backslidden Christian does? To the very Son of God, the Savior who died on the cross, it, it, you're basically communicating. When a believer willfully sins, you're com communicating to a lost world that Jesus isn't worth anything, that he is worthless, trodden underfoot. It's like salt that's lost to Savior. You just throw it out there, and it's not really good for much, and we'll just trot it underfoot. Literally treating the very Son of God, the one who, who went through everything so that you and I could have the power over sin. We have trodden it underfoot when we willfully and continually sin. Number two, he says there's something else you do too. You, you hath counted the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. The ellipsis points there is where he says, by which you've been sanctified. You've been set apart by that blood. Here's how you're treating it. Literally, you're rendering the blood of Christ that was shed for the remission of sins, note it, something unclean. It, it, it's, in essence, you've repudiated the, the blood of Christ. You rejected the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by your living as a backslidden Christian. Literally, what are you communicating? Uh, backslidden communi uh, Christians communicating that one has rendered Christ's sacrificial blood a common, unclean thing. What does that mean? You devalued what it is and what it has done. I tell you tonight, it is still true today. You want to get saved? It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice on the cross. 
the blood shed for the remission of sins. So to live a backslidden life, to call yourself a child of God and a believer, and yet continually live in sin. He says, you've, you've counted the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. The very thing by which you were redeemed and you were purchased and the very thing that, that, that took the penalty of your sin and the presence of sin in the future and the, the power of sin today, you have literally devalued it by your very living. How sad it is when we hear someone say, well, if that's what a Christian is, I don't want to have anything to do about it. Do with it. I don't, want to have, I, don't, I don't know anything about it. I don't want to have anything to do with that. That's how a Christian lives, or that's how a Christian acts, or if that's not a Christian is, they watch somebody who claims to be a Christian but yet does not live up to the name, shall we say. In their backslidden condition, they've devalued the blood of God, the blood of Christ for what it is and what it has done. Number three, he says there's something else that's happened. Literally, and you see the terminology here, you have insulted the Spirit of God. He uses the word despite. I believe it's the only time that the Greek word there is used in, this, uh, in the New Testament. It means insulted. Despite, you've insulted it. The Holy Spirit that indwells every Christian, that is certainly part of that power of Christ within a believer to help him or her to live holy, a godly life, giving out the daily grace to do so. I love that, the spirit of grace. I'm glad it's the Holy Spirit within us that ministers grace to us on a daily basis to do what we ought to do, to say what we ought to say, to think what we ought to think. The Holy Spirit indwells us to help us. He certainly guides us and directs us in the Word of God. The spirit of grace. But when we don't listen to Him, when we ignore the Spirit of grace, when we, when we deny His power in our lives, when we do not yield to Him and, and we go and choose sin instead and we yield to the flesh, the old nature, the old man, we allow Him to control us and to rule and to reign. You know what we do? The Bible has a term for it, right? We grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit. There's many a person here tonight sitting in these pews, someone has grieved you. You might even say they grieved you in your spirit. Maybe it's a family relation. Maybe it's a child. Whatever the case may be, they have grieved you by their actions. They have disappointed you. They have caused heartbreak. They have grieved you. Can I just tell you right now, you have a small understanding of what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit. When a child of God does not live as he ought or she ought to, when a child of God does not use the power of Jesus Christ through the cross of Calvary to live in a life that overcomes evil and sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. When you and I as believers, we, we allow sin. We, we don't think it's that big of a deal. And we entertain it. And we live in it. We grieve the Holy Spirit. When a Christian lives in sin deliberately and willfully, you know what you're communicating? You're communicating and showing great contempt for the Spirit of grace. Great contempt for the Spirit of grace. I see a Christian with open sin in one's life Someone has said, well, they're just, they're useless for the cause of Christ. Oh, no, 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 no. They're much worse than useless for the cause of Christ. They're damaging to the cause of Christ. Every Christian who lives in open sin for the world to see then opens the door for the ridicule of the world. The world can laugh and mock and scorn the Christian faith, those who claim the name of Jesus Christ and faith in Him. You know what the passage is saying? Do not be mistaken. God will deal with such a person. Mark it down. It's a promise. 
Now, we do, we rightfully so, we sure do value the promises of God. Uh, uh, this week, Caden was doing a, uh, a, a devotion. I think it was for Patch, actually, down here. And it said, write out some of the promises of God. And I think he wrote out, never leave you nor forsake you. And he wrote out a couple. You know what I didn't find out there? Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Because we don't like that promise. That's not one we want to say, oh man, when I think of the promises of God, standing on the promises, it's that God's going to get me if I disobey him. That's not the promise we cling to. But can I tell you, it's no less than a promise of God. It's no less. It's the promise of the passage. Friend, you, you're not going to get away with this. God judges his own. It's a promise of God. It's interesting, too. Because often we think and we get into gross sin or we get into sin that we commit continually. We don't think it's that big of a deal. And, and uh, well, God, it'll go unaddressed. God's not going to deal with it. Well, you know what God does in the passage here? He says, let me give you an illustration. In fact, we'll use a different term that matches our alliteration. Uh, he's going to give us an analogy. He's going to give us a picture um, from that this is compared to. In fact, the first few words of 29, verse 29, we just read, they point to this comparison, right? He says this, of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy of who does the things we just saw described? Okay? You trod underfoot the Son of God. Yeah, yeah, you um, look at the blood of the covenant and you um, count that as an unholy thing. You, you, despite, you insult the Holy Spirit. That person, sore punishment, then something. And the something is given to us in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Let's read that. Okay? Verse 28. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Whoa, there's some strong words. He that despised the, the law of Moses, kind of interesting, similar word, despised, despite. He that despised the Moses' law, the, the word of God, died without mercy under two or three witnesses. You see, under the law of Moses, and there are several illustrations under the very law of God, when one rejected the word of God, when they lived in open rebellion, and it was established by two or three witnesses, or God was the witness, he would die without mercy. He'd be put to death. It was a severe requirement, certainly under the law, but it was nonetheless the truth. And there's many illustrations of it. Let me just give you one. It's one that we all understand and, and can say, oh, yeah, that makes sense because I'm familiar with that. Okay? Remember what the fifth commandment says. Fifth commandment says what? Honor thy father and thy mother, okay? that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. This was Ten Commandments. This was given in the, the law of Moses to, from the get-go, from the beginning uh, to the nation of Israel. Now, let me ask you this. What happened to the son that did not do that? That deliberately and willfully rebelled against his parents, meaning that he rebelled against the very word of God. He despised the law of Moses. Remember what happened? Well, let me help you. We're not going to take time to turn there, but you can look at the very small words above me. I'll read them. Okay? If a man... Have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that, when they have chastened him, will not hearken unto them. 
Then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him, bring him out unto the elders of the city and unto the gate of his palace. And they, the mouths of two or three witnesses, and they shall say unto the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die, so that shalt thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear, and what's the next word? Fear. Hmm. Because you know what? That reminds me immediately of a word used in verse 27. But there is a certain fearful look. Huh. You know, the bottom line is, and don't misunderstand it, I'm not talking about us taking Moses' law and living it out today. Don't show up with your son at my door. Don't do that. What are we saying? Our God is a holy God, and he hates sin. And the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And yet he has given us, I would say, so much more in the age of grace, the dispensation of grace, so that you and I can now live without the power of sin ruling and reigning in our lives. It's a great thing. Can I just tell you, it's a good time to be alive in Christ. It really is. To all that we have and all that we have been given. That's the bottom line. So here in Hebrews 10, we're being asked, I, I love the, the kind of rhetorical question. Don't, don't you think that it, they, don't you suppose, in verse 29 is what he said, don't you suppose that they should receive their worthy of a sore punishment, literally, you know what he's telling us? God will deal severely and swiftly with a backslidden Christian today. Because God is holy. God hates sin. And when we get to Hebrews chapter 12, we'll see, you know what? God chastens the son he loves. The daughter. The child of God he chastens. See, so you know what the author is trying to open our eyes to, and we'll quickly finish Roman number five. God's attentiveness to the attitude and the action warned against. He gives the analogy, and he, through the analogy, he's saying, listen, God, God's very attentive. Look at verse 27. I know we're just going to go through these quickly. Verse 27, but a certain fearful looking of judgment. Okay, this is tied to verse 26, right? For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain, in other words, there remaineth a certain fearful looking of or for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Can I just tell you something right now? Listen to me very carefully. Our God is undefeated. I like an undefeated God, don't you? And I'll tell you something. If you think you're going to get away with sin, <laughs> you're about to lose. You're about to lose. Because our God is undefeated. He devours his adversary. And anyone who's been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and says, I can live any way I want, I can do whatever I want, my friend, can I just tell you, you've established yourself as the enemy of God. You have. The passage is very clear. You've set yourself up for the very judgment of God. Mark it down, expect it, judgment will come, and it is something to be feared. It will be terrifying. <laughs> no additional sacrifices ahead, only judgment lies ahead. Did you see what he used? A great picture here in the verse. He says, the fiery, right? The fiery indignation. You know what fire is often an emblem for? The very wrath of God. 
blank and brimstone, right? Fire and brimstone, right? It's, it's a perfect example throughout Scripture of punishment, judgment, the wrath of God being poured out. And we are reminded that he is attentive to all things, right? He knows all. He sees all. He cannot tolerate uh, sin. And it should say he is, uh, uh, and is attentive, excuse me, and will act. He is attentive and will act on that sin in judgment. Look at verse 30. For we know him that hath said. We, we know what God is like. We know his very character. We know his actions. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Backslidden Christian can mark it down. And we'll again look at it more in depth in chapter 12. But God will act. He will chasten his own, judging his own. He will bring discipline home to roost. There is no modern, <laughs> there is no modern um, parenting mumbo jumbo that God operates by what some people say today. I love my child too much to discipline them. That is not the way God parents. And that is not the way good Christians parent. God does not handle, no, the reality is this, that would make him an unloving God. You say, how do you know that? Or do you realize in the scripture it appears that there's only one person that God ever said ever allowed to be described in the holy scriptures, the perfect scriptures, the complete scriptures, as someone after God's own heart. And yet the very person who was described after, after someone after God's own heart, can I tell you right now, he felt the chastening hand, the judging, punishing hand of God as much as anybody. As much as anybody. Judgment fell on David time and time again. Why? When he deliberately and willfully sinned, he felt the harsh, judging hand of God who brought the consequences of sin. Though he were forgiven, there's still consequences of sin. There's been many a good message preached in the past. In fact, I was looking at one this week, and the title of it was this, The Consequences of Forgiven Sins. That's good because it brings up theological truth. Can I tell you right now, praise the Lord, we experience forgiveness of sin. But my friend, forgiveness doesn't always take away the consequences. Doesn't always take away the consequences. Sometimes God is merciful. He is compassionate where he does remove the consequences. And I'll tell you, that's only by the grace of God. Because we deserve the full consequences of our choices and our sins. Just because it's forgiven doesn't mean it always removes the consequences. Look at, or you see the statement real quick. He will judge his own, okay? He will judge his own. Look at verse 31, and we'll be done here. Man, what a statement. It is a fearful thing. There's that word again. To fall into the hands of the living God. Sounds ominous, doesn't it? <laughs> it should be, because it's true. You don't want to fall into the judging, recompensing, as he used that word earlier, punishing hands of God. John would tell us in 1 John 5, 16, there's a sin unto death. Paul wrote the church in Corinth. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11, we were just there on Sunday night. You know what he wrote the church of Corinth? In your church, there are some that sleep. A picture of death, a statement of death. There are some that, that, that are dead because they lived in sin. They did not repent. They did not come to me for forgiveness. They did not forsake their sin. It's a strong statement, but it's there. Because God takes sin seriously. 
God certainly does not always <laughs> take the life of a rebellious believer, but I can guarantee you, you can take it to the bank. He always deals with them. He always deals with them. We'll get into Hebrews chapter 12, and that deals more with the nuances of the chastening of the Lord and, and, and the heart, the purpose behind it. We'll get there uh, here in a couple chapters, and probably two or three years. Um, we'll be there, and, uh, um, but uh, he'll deal with it, right? But listen, hey, truth, not every sinning believer dies, but you better believe it. Every sinning believer feels the chastening hand of God. In one way or the other, they will. It's the promise of the passage. God judges his own. So what do you and I take from this? Don't miss it. Two things and we're done. I'm, I keep saying that, but I mean it. I'm done. Draw near unto God. Don't draw near unto your sin. Draw near unto God. That's where the passage started, right? Before verse 26. Draw near unto him. He'll draw, draw near to God. Drop your sin. Don't draw near unto your sin. Number two, hold fast your faith. Don't hold fast your sin. Confess, forsake that sin. Don't hold that fast. Hold fast your faith. And number three, Think of others around you. Don't provoke them unto sin. Provoke them unto love and good works. Provoke them unto love. Don't let you, don't be the one who says, well, if they can do it, I can do it. If they think they're a Christian, they can do that, then I can. Don't be that person. Don't provoke them unto sin. Provoke them unto love and to good works. The last statement I leave you with, and there's a reason I put it at the end so you pay attention. Still have to fill in a blank here. Okay, here it is. I think it's a great statement. I don't want you to ever forget it. I like it, okay, even if, because I wrote it, but I like it. Here's what it is, okay? Notice it. When it comes to sin in our lives, the hands that cleanse are more gentle than the hands that chasten. It's a good statement. It really is. Do you realize that the hands of God are open for forgiveness and mercy and compassion? I'd much rather throw myself into those hands than the hands of God that judge. That chasten. Those hands are much mer more merciful, more gentle. Throw yourself at the mercy of God. Confess your sin. Repent for sake of it. Don't let the hands of judgment be placed upon you. So much better. I love the passage. I think it's powerful. I think it's a good challenge and warning for you and I today. We'll get into the rest of the chapter in the weeks ahead. Brother Cliff.